Yeah, this is what I'm talking about today. We've, we finally got justice figured out. So, and there it is. <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for inviting me. The, the first time I ever came to Oxford was actually under the auspices of the uh, OTJR. Um, it was 2008. Uh, Phil Clark had just got this up and running. So it was the, um, that was the first time I came here, so it's nice to be back again under the same auspices. I hope it's not another eight years before I <laughs> get invited back <laughs> once again. Okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a long ways away. So, um, so yeah, so if, if you came for the abstract alone, you're going to be disappointed because uh, you kind of go to war with the army you have, and I'm coming to Oxford with the paper I have written. So I'm going to be talking about the Dominic Ongwen confirmation of charges theory um, and putting that in the context of his case more broadly. And it'll touch on some of the same themes that were advertised in the abstract. But just to warn you, if you're waiting for me to start talking about, say, the African Union and the uh, expansion of the jurisdiction of the African Court of Justice and Human Rights and this and that, I'm not going to be talking about that today. But probably in the future at some point, I will write that paper. So. Um, every international criminal trial, as we know, is about many things, and often justice is among the least of them. Uh, seen through a political lens, trials can be about continuing war by other means. Through a symbolic lens, they can have symbolic importance by establishing useful historical narratives and imagined political communities or moral communities, or can they, they can simply play the more pedestrian role of serving donors and providing jobs. Every trial is also going to be about asserting the reality of international criminal law itself, assisting international criminal law in its ongoing project of its tenuous self-creation. And so every trial is going to entail an element of sacrifice. As the defendant is offered up to produce the texts, arguments, precedents, opinions, and enforcement needed for international criminal law to establish its existence as a real body of positive law. But of course, at the same time, every use of international criminal law, even if it is intended to realize justice, or perhaps especially to realize justice, is going to run up against contradictions. It's going to reveal dilemmas as a result of, in my opinion, the ultimately impossible attempt to use a legal institutional structure developed within the context of the nation state on the international or global level. And so I think we can read many of the classics of international criminal law, say Arendt or Schlar or um, Kirchheimer. We can read those as showing how both known and new dilemmas of international criminal law emerge in specific ways in trials. So I'm not going to be doing anything particularly novel today by leveling critiques at the ICC. And in fact, one of the things that I've been struck by over the last year or two is the fact, is the way that the critique of the ICC has in fact gone mainstream. In the media, among students, even among some of the scholars and activists around the court who serve as its publicists and defenders, Today we hear things that five or ten years ago, if you were to have said, would have had you condemned as an apologist for war criminals or dictators, as I and many of my colleagues found out at the time. 
The most sort of obvious charge against the ICC, and the one you most often hear in sort of popular media today, is the court's paltry record to date. People ask, well, can two convictions justify the ICC's 14 years of work, over a billion dollars spent, including 200 million on this fancy new building? But in a sense, the ICC is sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, because the places where it does get involved, it gets even more criticism. All right? The court's been accused of betraying its own goals and objectives, of victimizing victims, serving the powerful, abusing the weak, violating the rule of law, operating without accountability, foreclosing other possibilities and imaginations of justice, being anti-democratic, reinforcing gender, race, or class oppression, misinterpreting historical narratives, individualizing collective responsibility, and feeding polarization and violence. And this, of course, is on top of the fact that every formal investigation, until actually a couple weeks ago, has been in Africa, and still all indicted are Africans. So in my view, after revealing the kinds of contradictions and dilemmas of ICC practice, I think the next task of critique is to take seriously the implications of those tensions, of those dilemmas for justice, where the meaning, terrain, and boundaries of justice are themselves part of what is open to question. And so in this way, I think it's important for us to understand the injustices enabled by trials but also to discern the possibilities for justice that trials illuminate, the horizons of justice that trials open up, even if, or especially if, it is by reading those trials against their grain, reading them against their own assumptions, looking for possibilities of justice that international criminal law may open up that point beyond criminal law itself or beyond the ICC. So in this talk, I'm going to briefly sort of explore some of these questions of international law's self-creation and its justice and injustice by looking at former LRA commander Dominic Ong Wen's confirmation of charges here. Um, oh, just in case you, you're not familiar with it, his name is spelled O-N-G-W-E-N, A-Wen is a uh, white ant, like a termite, right? So if your name is on when, it means that you were born during a time of year when the white ants were swarming. So they, there's certain rains. If it's been dry for a long time and then it rains, uh, and the white ants come out and you collect them at night by shining, basically what you do is you get a big sort of, uh, um, what do you call it, like an iron sheet, and you put it up and you shine a really bright light on it, for some reason, it attracts the ants, and they fly into the screen and hit it and break their wings off and are collected on the ground. And you use them to make a kind of paste that then you use for cooking. So um, that's where Ong Wen's name comes from, just as an aside. So um, Ong Wen just had his confirmation of charges hearing a couple weeks ago in The Hague, and I was I attended it. Uh, and so for that reason, it's been on my mind, so I wanted to talk about it here today. And for those of you who don't know, Ang Wen was one of the five commanders in the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA, the most notorious of them being Joseph Kony. 
who were named in the ICC's historic first arrest warrants in 2005. Ang Wen was turned over to the ICC just over a year ago in January of 2015. And he's been in The Hague ever since, awaiting this confirmation of charges hearing, which will determine whether there's sufficient evidence to go, with, to go forward with a full trial. So that decision is expected within a month or two, and then it's probable it is trial if, it's, if it goes ahead, and I, I'm sure they're going to approve it, would probably be within about a year. So average is a little over a year. Now the thing is with Joseph Coney still in the bush somewhere, and with the other three LRA commanders for whom arrest warrants have been issued all dead, a lot is riding on this case, on Ang Wen's case. And it may, and so, so it's both the first, but it may also be the only case in what had been the ICC's path-breaking first situation that it got involved in 10 years ago. So Ang Wen's prosecution is about many things, and I'm just going to have a, this is sort of a preliminary sketch of a few of these things that I see it as being about, which is part of a larger project that I'm embarked on using his case as sort of a lens for thinking about some broader issues of international criminal justice today. So as I mentioned before, every international criminal trial, and especially at something as tenuous as the ICC, is a remarkable chance to see law in action and law in the making to see a fragile legal order both preserving itself against challenges and expanding itself, creating itself anew in this eternal bootstrapping operation that commenced with the ICTY. And I think that Ong Wen's confirmation of charges hearing has made apparent some of the ways that the ICC's Office of the Prosecutor may intend to use his trial to both defend and expand international criminal law's domain. So I want to focus on two of them, which are of most interest to me because of their immediate political and ethical implications. First, the effort to defend IC, ICL being international criminal law. The effort to defend ICL's domain by insisting on and establishing incontrovertibly the criminal responsibility of the so-called victim perpetrator, of which Ang Wen is sort of the paradigmatic case. And second, to expand ICL's domain by creating a new crime, that of forced marriage, along with a new social domain that the ICC claims sovereignty over. And so I see these both defensive and expansive functions as both hinging on a specific understanding of consent, but one that is interestingly applied in a mutually exclusive fashion by each. So we see the same notion of, particular notion of consent, but the expanding function uses it in one way and the defensive function uses it in another, which is a bit abstract, but I'll explain. Now, as many of you probably know, Ong Wen's case has attracted notoriety because of a deeply inconvenient fact for the prosecution. And this is one that Ong Wen himself drew attention to in the very first statement that he was allowed to make at his pre-trial hearing last year, just about a year ago now. When he was asked about his date of birth, Ong Wen responded that he'd been born in 1975 and then continued in a choli, quote, I was abducted in 1988 and taken to the bush when I was 14 years old. Though in fact, he may have only been nine years old when he was abducted and taken to the bush. 
by the LRA. So this image of Ong Wen as both a victim of the brutality of the LRA as well as a perpetrator of that brutality and the consequent difficulty of attributing criminal responsibility to a man who grew up in the rebels' ranks has provided the most prominent narrative of the Ong Wen case to date. It's also formed a major part of the defense's argument against confirming the charges. As Ong Wen's lawyers have tacked between two assertions, one, that Ong Wen's abduction and what they called spiritual indoctrination prevented him from integrating into normal society and its values, and so they argue that Ong Wen never reached mental maturity, but, quote, remained a child until the time he surrendered, following blindly LRA Commander Joseph Kony's orders to kill. So that's one argument that they use. But as lawyers are, do, they can use mutually contradictory arguments to make the same, uh, same point. So they were arguing that on the one side, but then at the other hand, they were also arguing that Ong Wen was, in fact, under permanent duress. And so, although he was in possession of normal capacities for reasoning and moral reasoning, he remained with the LRA and committed atrocities because he was afraid that otherwise he, his family, and the village he was from would have all been killed. So these two kind, different ways of sort of exculpating um, Ang Wen based upon his abduction as a child. Now, for their part, the prosecution had no illusions about the disruptive power of this victim-perpetrator narrative. And so they attacked it head-on to try to prevent it from sweeping the ground out from the prosecution, not just of Ong Wen, but basically any alleged criminal who could be cast in that role as a victim-perpetrator. So the prosecution sought to dismantle both the indoctrination defense and the duress defense so as to establish Ong Wen's criminal responsibility. And this was largely undertaken by the, chief, the ICC prosecutor for the case, a very urbane London barrister named Benjamin Gumpert. And Gumpert began by agreeing, yes, Ong Wen had at one point in his life been a victim, but that sympathy didn't last long. And Gumpert immediately turned to start describing in graphic detail Ong Wen's most atrocious violence including accusation of, accusations of cannibalism, which perhaps not unexpectedly were the only part of the whole hearing to make it into the BBC. So from that description of Ang Wen's atrocities, Gumpert explained why Ang Wen had to be held accountable. He said, quote, the phenomenon of the perpetrator victim is not restricted to international courts. It's familiar in all criminal jurisdictions. Drug dealers rarely boast serene, untroubled childhoods. And child abusers, he said, were often, often abused as children themselves. But, he declared, this is no reason to expect that crimes can be committed with impunity. This is because, quote, each human being must be taken to be endowed with moral responsibility for their actions. We have a choice, and when that choice is to kill, to rape, and enslave, we must expect to be held to account. Ong Wen was an adult when he committed the crimes, Gumpert declared, and so in the absence of medical evidence that Ong Wen lacked normal mental faculties and judgment, we must assume that he was a rational individual with access to universal moral values who knew what he was doing was wrong. So that's to deal with the indoctrination argument. To deal with the argument based upon duress, the prosecution invoked Ong Wen's supposed enthusiasm for killing. 
Agwen climbed the ranks of the LRA under his own initiative, they explained, helped by his reputation for brutality. Angwen failed to flee the LRA the many times he had the chance to do so, said the prosecution, despite the fact that thousands of others in his situation were able to flee. And to this end, the victim's representative, Paulina Masida, who played sort of the prosecution's hatchet man throughout the hearing, described an intercepted radio communication of Ang Wen after a particularly bloody attack. Does Ang Wen sound remorseful, she asked, in this radio communication? Like someone who is under duress? No, she said. Instead, Ang Wen laughs. Ang Wen was in fact enjoying himself, she said. And so his laughter becomes proof of his criminal responsibility, of his free choice to commit atrocities. So even if Ang Wen did not consent to his childhood recruitment, his laughter condemns him by demonstrating that he did consent to the system he had become part of and the acts he committed. So any relevance of Ang Wen's original non-consent is erased and we must understand him to have committed atrocity out of his own volition, is the prosecution's argument. And so a normal human is constructed, whose values, decisions, rationality, and actions may diverge legitimately from international criminal law only if he is medically declared psychopathological. Angwen was thus declared to be normal, in a sense, all too normal, because that is required in order to establish the criminality of his decisions based upon his free will. The only alternative to be absolutely consenting and thus criminally responsible, said the prosecution, was to be absolutely coerced, which Ong Wen was deemed not to be because his later consent nullified his original coercion and put him in the category of absolute consent. Right, so we have a model of consent, either absolute consent, absolute non-consent. It's a matter of deciding in which one on when falls. They decided his laughter put him in the category of absolute consent. The initial non-consent to recruitment is nullified. The interesting thing is this same model of consent is going to be employed in the case of forced wives, forced marriage, but in an opposite way, with the opposite implication. So ICC Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda has been lauded by human rights groups for her new approach to ICC investigations and prosecutions. As opposed to the previous Chief Prosecutor Luis Moreno Campos perceived tendency to favor a narrow strategic approach to charges, Bensouda has declared her intention to take a comprehensive approach to cases, trying to capture the total experience of victims suffering this has been deemed a victim-centered approach and is translated into a particular focus on sexual and gender-based crimes, SGBC, and crimes against children. Now this may also be, in my view, probably is a way of trying to get away from some of the more overt political dimensions of ICC interventions by invoking a victim-centered humanitarianism instead. But regardless of the motivation for this shift, there's clear evidence of this new approach or clear evidence of this new approach can be seen in the expansion of Dominic Ongwen's charge sheet. 
In the arrest warrant of 2005, Ong Wen was charged with, had, there were seven charges against Ong Wen. In the confirmation of charges hearing, the number had ballooned to 67, the most of anyone charged by the ICC to date. Many of these new counts were sexual and gender-based crimes. Thus, Gumpert said, the prosecution sought to provide a, quote, representative sample of Ong Wen's crimes. Now, there's a whole book that could be written about what this means, this expansion and whatnot. So we're just, I'm going to be talking about just one particular aspect of it. But I think this is the kind of thing that's really important to, to pay attention to. And so I think it's in this new centrality of sexual and gender-based crimes with Ong Wen that we see the prosecution's intention to use Ong Wen's trial as a way of expanding the empire of international criminal law. So most notable and most contested among these new crimes is the, is the charge of forced marriage. Now you would be forgiven for not having heard much about forced marriage as a international crime because in fact it's not named as a crime in the statute of any international court. It was first invoked as a crime in the special court for Sierra Leone, an appeals chamber decision in 2008 under the category of other inhumane acts but has had very little success in the years, in fact, no success in the years since. Despite intense advocacy by many victims' rights and SGBV-focused NGOs, it's been challenged widely in the legal literature and has not been taken up by any other international courts. But I think what came clear at the confirmation of charges hearing is that the prosecution intends to use on Wen's trial as the opportunity to establish forced marriage as a crime. Ong Wen is going to be sacrificed to the creation of this new international crime of forced marriage. So, you might ask, I might ask, how do you create a new international crime? Where does it come from? Well, Ong Wen's hearing provided, at least for me as a political scientist, a very illuminating demonstration of how kind of a jumble of heterogeneous elements are thrown together in hopes that their combined performative rhetorical power will conjure up a new supposed aspect of our universal humanity that must be formalized in and defended by law. So how did this happen? Well, the prosecutor began the process by ritually invoking the mental and physical suffering of the victims of forced marriage. They were forced to accept LRA husbands or risk beating, held in domestic slavery and forced to perform household chores, he said, as well as being subjected to repeated rape by their husbands, often becoming pregnant as a result. Masida, the representative for the victims, took the argument further. She sequentially invoked provisions from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and ICCPR that declared forced marriage a human rights violation, not legal documents, but human rights documents. Then, vivid invocations of the suffering of Acholi victims, and then, most bizarrely, a long passage from Titus Livius on the rape of the Sabine women, all to support the prosecution's position that forced marriage should be recognized as a distinct crime under Article 7.1K's criminalization of other inhumane acts and not subsumed under the existing crime of sexual slavery. Now this last point quickly became the most contested aspect of the attempt to establish forced marriage as a crime. The defense insisted that forced marriage was not a distinct crime, but rather the violence it entailed should be treated under sexual slavery 
and that the domestic aspects could be treated under enslavement. Other aspects could be treated under rape or forced pregnancy, all of which were already crimes under the Rome Statute and had years of jurisdiction and case law behind them. The prosecution, however, rejected this argument. They argued that the crucial element of forced marriage, which makes it distinct from sexual slavery, rape, or enslavement, is the mental and emotional trauma caused by the forced conjugal relation itself. The use of the label wife is itself hurtful, Masida said, traumatizing women and girls at the time of their forced marriage and even after they leave the bush and return to civilian life. Once home, she argued, those subjected, or rather this is Gumpert, once home, those who had been subjected to forced marriage by the LRA while in the bush, according to Gumpert, quote, still have to live with the stigma of being an LRA wife, a perversion of the true meaning of that word, that is wife. The result was that, quote, their future hopes of creating new conjugal relationships are blighted. So without women's consent to marriage, the argument went, the conjugal relationship will never be accepted as normal by the women, and the women will be in a state of permanent ongoing trauma and violent coercion, unable to later have a normal relation with men. And so a model of consent is deployed in this conceptualization of forced marriage, in which the initial coercion is taken to establish women's absolute and permanent non-consent and continuing traumatization. I think you can see where I'm going to go with this. So what international criminal law is doing here is that it's seeking to expand as a system of positive law by designating and elucidating forced marriage as a new crime, enshrining it in the practice of the ICC. But as importantly, ICL also seeks to expand in another way, by declaring itself sovereign over new domains of social life. And if the prosecution of rape as a war crime has brought sexual relations under the jurisdiction of ICL, and thus sought to regulate such relations by demarcating and enforcing the line between consensual and non-consensual sex, between normal and criminal sex, as scholars like Janet Haley have examined, now, with forced marriage, it's the formal institution of marriage and the family that are declared subject to ICL sovereignty. For, Gumpert explained, forced marriage is not primarily a sexual crime, but is rather about, quote, the whole concept of marriage as a positive social institution, which is news to me. But. And so with this crime of forced marriage, the prosecutor announces ICL's authority to declare that a normal marriage is one in which both partners clearly and absolutely consent and that a marriage in which one partner does not absolutely consent is among, quote, the most serious crimes of concern to the international community as a whole, in the words of the Rome Statute, and so must be punished. But there was one moment in the hearing when a slightly more complex picture of marriage slipped through. When describing the trauma of forced marriage, Gumpert admitted, almost reluctantly, that some forced wives are, quote, freighted with mixed emotions towards the man who forcibly married them. They are often burdened with a residual regard, sometimes even affection,
for the man who subjected them to forced marriage as well as raping them and holding them in sexual slavery. The implication, of course, is that these positive feelings are not genuinely positive. They are a burden, a weight, a further form of suffering and trauma for the women. The only reason that Gumpert can come up with as to the origin of these feelings is that perhaps LRA men were not always brutal towards their forced wives, he said. And so, in order to establish women's permanent and absolute non-consent to marriage that is deemed abnormal and criminal by international criminal law, the prosecution has to rely on a kind of Stockholm syndrome to account for the women's experiences. If forced wives ever expressed positive feelings towards their LRA husbands, called them their husbands, had positive memories of their relationships, or laughed, as Ong Wen laughed, that only proves the depth of those women's victimization and traumatization. The women had been stripped of the agency to make sense of their lives or come to see their marriage to LRA in any other way than as trauma, violence, and suffering. Now, what the prosecution refers to very briefly, only to immediately rescind, has in fact been subject to extensive work by anthropologists and sociologists, who are themselves not burdened with the professional need to turn their interlocutors into agency-less victims. This kind of research has testified to the complexity of lives of women who had been with the LRA, showing how new forms of kinship develop in the bush even out of the most coerced relationships. How women who leave the LRA may seek to return to their rebel husbands afterwards, may speak of their time in the bush and relationships there as positive, even with tenderness, despite the massive hardships. How the relationships forged in the bush can actually remain in place when back at home. I was just talking to a friend of mine a couple days ago, did a couple years of work on this in northern Uganda, and he was telling me about actually a wife of Ong Wen's, who, when she came back, went to Ong Wen's family and demanded that they help support her children as a husband is supposed to do in sort of a normal Acholi marriage. And the family responded and provided support to the children. So in other words, the relationship that had been formed in the bush between her and Ong Wen was seen as something that the family back at home had to make good on and had to provide support within that structure. Now, of course, such positive experiences aren't universal. Of course not. But what this research does reveal is the vast diversity of experiences and ideas about normal and desirable marriages, families, and social relations that exist among this group of women that are portrayed by those advancing the crime of forced marriage as one-dimensional victims, traumatized, and without agency or moral choice. So I think you see what I'm getting at here. Forced wives under international criminal law, because of their initial coercion, are deemed permanently traumatized and absolutely not consenting to marriage despite any sign they may give otherwise. On when, on the other hand, the victim perpetrator under ICL despite his initial coercion, is deemed untraumatized and is absolutely consenting to the crimes he commits because he laughs, unless, of course, it's established medically that he's incompetent or insane. So Ong Wen is granted moral choice and agency despite his initial coercion. Forced wives have no moral choice or agency because of their initial coercion. This contradiction, of course, stems from international criminal law's need for its victims to be absolutely coerced and its perpetrators to be absolutely, to absolutely willfully consent to the acts they perform. 
The need for Ong Wen to be an absolute perpetrator, to be a rational individual with self-possessed agency and knowledge of natural law principles embodied in the Rome Statute, and for the victim to be traumatized, divested of agency, and permanently suffering as long as they are subjected to crimes defined by the Rome Statute or new crimes invented by the lost champions. And these contradictions are intensified as international criminal law expands its sovereignty over broader and broader sections of social life in the name of this comprehensive victim-centered approach. As this dichotomy of normal and criminal is imposed on new social and cultural relations. And so, as I noted in the Ong Wen case, the ICC arrogates to itself the right to define exactly what a normal marriage is. And on this question, there was a lot of controversy as well. I've been focusing on the contradictions in the prosecution's effort to expand the law, but the defense too ran into difficulties in trying to establish the inapplicability of the supposed crime of forced marriage to Ang Wen. The defense's argument was twofold. First, as noted already, forced marriage can be encompassed under other international crimes. But second, the defense asserted that the so-called LRA wives were not wives at all. This is because proper marriages were not carried out in the bush, they said. And so to even call these women forced wives is inaccurate. According to the Chief Defense Counsel Crispus Ayena Adon, the partnerings in the bush did not conform to any of the ceremonies, institutions, or practices that are accepted as signifying marriage among the Acholi, and so cannot be construed as marriage. The women themselves were said to understand this to be the case, for according, according to Defense Counsel Abigail Bridgman, quote, in no cases did women refer to these men as husbands. Now, of course, this latter assertion is simply factually untrue, as even the prosecution admitted. But the assertion that no proper marriages took place is more complicated and reveals another point of contention with the prosecution. So the prosecution argued that while real marriages did take place in the bush, they were corrupted, perverted, because they did not involve certain institutional dimensions, including women's consent and the social benefits that are assumed to accrue to women in a supposedly proper marriage. The defense, however, argued that without the presence of these same institutional dimensions, so they agreed on what happened in the bush, but the defense said without these institutional dimensions, no marriage actually took place. So for the defense, not enough of the institution of marriage was present to call what happened in the bush marriage. And so you can't prosecute on when for forced marriage. For the prosecution, enough of the institution of marriage was present to call a bush marriage genuine. But enough was missing so as to pervert it and turn it into a source of trauma and thus a crime. What both have in common, of course, is that both start with an assumed model of what normal marriage is, in which women's consent, women's benefit, and the presence of certain civil, religious, or traditional institutions all coincide, which, of course, they may not, even in or especially in the most normal of circumstances. Both positions deny the possibility that consent is partial and circumscribed under the best of circumstances, that women might have eventually consented partially, contingently, to the marriages they were involved in in the bush, and that this kind of contingent partial consent can characterize women's and sometimes men's experiences of marriage in normal life as well. 
Both prosecution and defense deny that marriages that occurred in the bush may have been, been seen as some as, by some as genuine, and that the meaning of marriage itself, kinship itself, could have changed in the process, which it did, if, as the anthropologists tell us. So both sides instrumentalize women as victims so as to ground their legal arguments in victim suffering, which is the ultimate source of law, of course. Now, if ICL is going to expand into criminalizing and regulating intimate and deeply fraught and politically sensitive social and cultural, cultural relations in areas racked by warfare and violence, I think that this is a development that calls for engaged, sustained, independent, and responsible research on our part. What is going to happen as, the, as international criminal laws normal marriage is enforced, as normal humans are enforced? So I think this is one practical ethical demand, a demand of justice. If the ICC is about justice, I think this is about justice too, a demand of justice that arises out of the Alwen trial, a need for research. But a more abstract set of ethical questions arise as well about justice. Can international criminal law survive without these impossible figures of absolute consent and absolute non-consent? of the absolute perpetrator and victim of normal and non-normal? Can it survive a reality in which agency is always entangled and qualified, in which normal and non-normal humans, relations and societies are being constantly reconstructed, in which people live under and make, make meaningful lives within local and global structures of deep violence and constraint, in which consent is never absolute? How can we, or how should we, make sense of individual responsibility without depending on and trying to enforce these impossible fictions? How do we make sense of and what does justice mean in response to cruelty and atrocity among entangled agents? And I wonder if this can, at the most abstract level, help open ways into thinking about responsibility and justice in our infinitely entangled planetary present. So now, in this last part of the talk, I want to briefly sketch three other areas, briefly, in which Ong Wen's prosecution and international criminal laws need to create its own material reality in order to support its formal existence is giving rise to both contradictions and possibilities for justice. Now, as anyone who takes a first year course on international relations knows, the ICC does not have its own enforcement power. Right, we've all been guilty of saying this to undergrads, I'm sure. Right? But I think this actually obscures more than it clarifies. Because, for one thing, because it actually hides the fact that international criminal law is enforced. Is frequently enforced, in fact, has been enforced. But that it is not enforced in the way that the domestic analogy tells us it should be. And that's the problem. Now, as I've just tried to explain, sort of in a nutshell, International criminal law, as I see it, seeks to establish the reality of its formal positive existence by creating itself through the performance of and textual production around trials, and in so doing, inscribes its requisite ideas and understandings upon the world 
claiming sovereignty over certain domains, right? International criminal law says, this is what a normal marriage or normal human must be if international criminal law is going to exist, and exist it must. So in the same way, international criminal law establishes the reality of its enforcement by inventing that enforcement, by interpreting, reinterpreting certain existing acts of force, certain violent processes, interpreting those as enforcing international criminal law. So how does, again, how does ICL, how does international criminal law create its own enforcement? Well, part of this is that international criminal law has to inscribe upon the world a division between, on the one hand, humanitarian violence, violence that's designated by law as upholding and enforcing law, protecting the human, and on the other, inhuman violence, atrocity, crimes against humanity that must be prosecuted. And so the ICC intervenes into complex fields of existing political violence, where atrocities are endless, to quote Ben Suda when talking about Central African Republic. It in intervenes into these complex situations of violence and inscribes a division between the humanitarian and human and the criminal, criminal inhuman in order to assert the reality of its enforcement and of itself. And so there's a double move that happens a kind of purification of some forms of violence so as to render them humanitarian, and on the other hand, a condemnation of others to render them criminal and inhuman atrocity. So I'm going to look quickly at three instances in which we can see these processes occurring. The first arose from Ong Wen's apprehension a year ago. Now, from the reports we have, and they're still a bit sketchy, it seems that, to put it quickly, Ong Wen turned himself over to Seleka rebels in the Central African Republic, who handed him over to U.S. Special Forces, who just happened to be in the region, who handed him to the Ugandan troops who were there as part of an African Union military task force, who then handed him over to the CAR government, which made the handoff to ICC representatives in Bangui. That's what we think happened. It's probably a lot more complicated. Now, with his arrest, immediately it was framed as a victory for the law, for the victims, and for humanity, brought about through regional cooperation of states with the ICC. To quote Fatou Bensouda again, quote, I welcome the news, this was immediately after his arrest, I welcome the news that Dominic Nguyen, a high-ranking LRA commander, has surrendered and been transferred to the ICC. I'm grateful for the persistent efforts of the government of Uganda government of CAR, Uganda Army, African Union Task Force, and generally all those who have helped realize this significant development. Onwen's transfer brings us one step closer to ending the LRA's reign of terror. His transfer sends a firm and unequivocal message that no matter how long it will take, the Office of the Prosecutor will not stop until the perpetrators of the most serious crimes of concern to the international community are prosecuted and face justice for their heinous crimes. Victims of LRA crimes have waited far too long, deserve to see justice done. Now, Bensouda's clear demarcation of the purveyors of legitimate humanitarian violence from the targets of that violence, that is the purveyors of inhuman violence, of atrocity, masked a far more uncomfortable reality. Ugandan troops have been accused of looting and other war crimes in the region. 
and their presence is seen by many as part of Kampala's efforts at, at a destabilizing regional military expansion. The U.S. presence, which was not mentioned by Ben Souda, is tied to U.S. militarization of Africa under AFRICOM, the Africa Command, and American interest in building a widely dispersed, flexible military presence to ensure access to natural resources, fight so-called Islamic extremism, and counter growing Chinese influence. Why the U.S. forced Uganda to hang, hand Ong Wen over to the ICC raises other questions. In my view, Ong Wen may have been thrown as a sop to the ICC to keep the ICC from getting more openly involved in Palestine, which was also on the agenda at that time. Seleka, for its part, this rebel group that, was the first, that were the first ones to get Ong Wen and subsequently demanded a $5 million bounty from the U.S. that they had put on his head, Ong Wen, inconveniently, are themselves under ICC investigation for war crimes. And thus, Ben Suda didn't mention them at all, despite the fact that they were instrumental to this suppo supposed enforcement of international criminal law through regional cooperation. But of course, all this is hidden. And instead, Ugandan military expansion is explicitly legitimated as humanitarian, as is the US military presence in Africa, even if implicitly. While Seleka scandalizes this stark division between humanitarian enforcement and criminal too much, and so must be erased. But these kinds of scandals and the resulting need for purification, the need to ignore the atrocity that goes into supposedly enforcing international law, the atrocity that goes into supposedly enforcing the law to end atrocity, well, the Ong Wen case is, of course, no exception. We look at Libya. I mean, Libya is the most dramatic example, perhaps. But in fact, we see it everywhere where international criminal law is enforced, this scandal. And so through Ong Wen's sacrifice, the ICC is sanctifying the violence of an expanding transnational military regime, the violence of security assemblages driven by the US and Europe encompassing weaponized drones and ubiquitous surveillance, militarized police forces, and wide-ranging militarization throughout Africa, all in hopes that it, the ICC, can secure more international law enforcement, more so-called global justice. In my view, this is very dangerous. The second instance is the ICC's retroactive and instrumental designation of the line between humanitarian violence and inhuman atrocity during the Ugandan Civil War, which ended in 2007. Now, when the ICC first got involved in northern Uganda in the mid-2000s, there was already a firmly established humanitarian narrative of the conflict at the time. In this narrative, the LRA was, in a word, bizarre. LRA violence defied understanding. We heard about a rebel army of abducted children led by a spirit medium. The, there was sort of a tagline in any article about the LRA that said, and this, you can find this exact line repeated for years on end, quote, the rebels have no clear political agenda but said they want the country governed in accordance with the Christian Ten Commandments. Right? Joseph Kony is a madman leading a band of abducted children. That was the story. No political agenda. That was 2005, though. Today, the official portrayal of the LRA by the ICC has shifted. While I remember Moreno Campo denouncing the LRA as a criminal organization, actually telling it to me and Phil Clark in our faces like this, they're a criminal organization. 
But if you want to support them, that's fine. Those are his words, in fact. Phil and I were like, oh my God. <laughs> so while Moreno Campo was still denouncing the LRA as a criminal organization with no political agenda, whereas many of the critical scholars, Sverker Finstrom or myself, were arguing that the LRA's politics had to be taken seriously if the war was going to end, today the prosecution has come around. And today the prosecution now declares, yes, the LRA always did have a political agenda. They had a firm organization and hierarchy. They were a normal rebel organization dedicated to overthrowing the government and fighting government troops. And moreover, there was a strategic rationality to their violence. It wasn't insane violence that ICC now says. So no more mention of the Ten Commandments or Joseph Kony's spirits. Now it's not that the ICC read our work and was convinced by it, but rather because the prosecution now needs to establish Angwen's criminal responsibility primarily under the doctrine of command responsibility. Because war crimes, to be prosecuted for war crimes, you need a real war and not just irrational violence. Crimes against humanity are most easily proved when they're part of a systematic attack or plan. Prosecution needs the LRA to be a regular rebel group with a regular political agenda if they're going to prosecute on when. Rather, it's now the defense that argues that the LRA had no agenda, that it was under the religious control of Joseph Kony, had no real organization, and was just a criminal gang. Why? To absolve Ang Wen. So the prosecution, of course, still insists on the absolute inhumanity of Ang Wen's violence, even as it takes place within which what they now claim is a rational agenda and organization. But by granting a political agenda to the LRA, the prosecution opens up new questions. Was that political agenda legitimate? The prosecution seems to assume that the LRA's atrocious violence delegitimated the group's political agenda, and thus to assume that the LRA was in a relation of pure violence with the civilian population, and this came out over and over in the hearing. But of course, a Choli civilian's understanding of and relation with the LRA was far more complicated than one of absolute rejection. And the LRA's political agenda always did resonate widely in sometimes very unexpected ways. So I wonder if the trial can open up these questions, open up questions around the reasons for the rebellion, about the legitimacy of the LRA agenda, and about the long-term political injustice that might need to be addressed in Uganda and regionally. So if this condemnation of the LRA is one side of this double move of naming inhuman violence as atrocity, the other side, that of purification, of naming the violence that will end that atrocity, is found in the prosecution's need to establish the Ugandan government as the embodiment of humanitarian violence during the war, human rights enforcing violence. And in this, the ICC's narrative today is no different from what it was when the court first got involved 12 years ago. And at that time, it simply adopted the dominant international portrayal of the Ugandan government. In this portrayal, well, the Ugandan government was a longtime Western favorite. It was an enthusiastic participant in the US war on terror, World Bank favorite for its introduction of harsh neoliberal structural adjustment policies. And so Uganda got the benefit of the doubt, and it was seen as waging a desperate counterinsurgency against the LRA in a well-intentioned, if short-handed, effort to protect civilians and defeat this barbaric threat. And so during the war, the Ugandan government's violent counterinsurgency and the massive Western donor support for the counterinsurgency, 
as well as the work of aid agencies to support the policy of mass force displacement and internment of civilian populations, these were all cast as unambiguously humanitarian forms of violence. And so the ICC went after the LRA alone, giving the government effective impunity. Now this one-sided involvement has provoked strong reactions and led to demands that if justice is going to be done, the court can't take the side of the Ugandan government in the war, but rather has to take seriously the massive violence perpetrated by the government against the civilian population. But regardless of these protests, now 12 years on, the ICC's involvement is still having the systematic effect of helping to absolve the Ugandan government and its international supporters of any responsibility for the devastation or suffered by the population during the war. And this exculpation showed no signs of abating during this hearing. In fact, it seemed that the prosecution was going out of its way to establish the government's innocence without the defense even raising government crimes as an issue. But finally, this is the very last thing, perhaps the trial can help open up questions of responsibility, of how the Ugandan government created and sustained the material and political conditions in which the LRA came into existence and survived, in which Ong Wen could be abducted in the first place, in which young Acholi men had no other choice but to fight, in which the internment camps provided an easy target and recruiting ground for the rebels, in which civilian militias were organized by the government and then left to be slaughtered in which the U.S. could export its war on terror to Acholiland, and in which international aid agencies, especially World Food Program, supported a state campaign of mass force displacement and internment of a million people in camps for almost 10 years. So perhaps the trial can help raise the question of why the violent force internment of these civilians without military necessity and without adequate protection or aid led to tens of thousands of deaths, massive and ongoing civilian devastation, far more than what was caused by the LRA, why this isn't a grave violation of the laws of war, or a crime against humanity, subject to ICC jurisdiction. So I wonder if the absolute identification of state and donor violence as humanitarian violence can be shaken, even against the prosecution's own intent. And if that can happen, that would be a step forward for some kind of justice, perhaps. Thank you.